Hey, thanks so much for joining us in the politics of gender. This is the second part of our discussion on Judith Butler's Gender Trouble, the first chapter. We split it into two parts because it was incredibly long, but now we're back. Moving on to section three. This is my favorite title. <laughs> gender, the circular runes of a contemporary debate. Just moody. Is there a gender which a persons which persons are said to have, or is it an essential attribute that a person is said to be, as implied in the question, what gender are you? Yeah. So that hits the nail on the head, because often people think like our worries are like where to place gender metaphysically, but I think that the real for me what's always been the mystery is like, okay, if it's a biological reality, why am I it versus having it when I have lots of other biological realities? And I would certainly never say I am it. Mm -hmm. I am a digestive being or something like that. Yeah. Um, so it seems to me the point of this section is that she's doing more more troubling. Um, and when we're talking about troubling, uh, what we're talking about is um, critical theory, really. Um, and I, I think it's a helpful point to make because she uses the word critical elsewhere. It's already come up. Um, but when she's saying critical, it doesn't mean important or essential. Um, it's a critical method. It's basically the genealogical critique. Um, yeah, you could think of it as meaning criticized. Yeah. So so the critical method is kind of the same thing as, as troubling. Mm -hmm. is showing where things fall short it's it's the whole idea of uh, blurring boundaries of of um showing that's what what is presumed to be natural is not so what is presumed to be fixed is in fact contingent so what she does in this section is she starts troubling construction itself and then she ends up troubling how gender is marked like how we notice it, how we perceive it, I guess, in the contemporary feminist debate. She uses a lot of rhetorical questions uh, in this section and really moving My forward. Favorite. And I think that's what made it a really difficult read. Mm -hmm. um, I remember reading it the first time and being really frustrated, like, tell me what you think. You know what I, I did uh, on my first, uh, it, was, it was one of the readings of this book, I just started as a different book but i started just taking out the question marks and the the like whatever made the sentence a question and then taking out all of the perhaps and the maybe or it could seem that and just trying to get to the sentences as propositions um so that was a little bit helpful so let's see what is she doing here um she she so so uh, postmodern uh, feminists or uh, queer theorists agree that gender is this culturally constructed thing, but that can be troubled further because not everyone agrees about how the cultural construction of gender came about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So she'll ask things like, is the body uh, a passive thing that receives our meaning or is it not? Um, or is the body only seen through our language categories? And that's mm -hmm. kind of going back to the same argument about sex. Is there this thing out there and then I perceive it and then I impose a meaning upon it? Or is the reason why I see it, I notice it in the first place is because like I, I'm already told that it means something. Sure. Yeah. Which and again, I, I don't think is overwhelmingly compelling it's 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 a it's a strange mindset to get into 
Um, but I can see how she has to move in that world because of the postmodern principles that she's already taking uh, into account. Yeah. So she says that... Is this where she has um, Bouvoir? Simone Bouvoir? I can never say. Yeah, this is, yeah. This is when she starts mm -hmm. um, comparing Bouvoir and... Uh, was it... Yeah, and I'll just uh, or Wittig no, uh, no. Rigoré, um, and it's and what we're not really here to do is go deeply into their theories because that wouldn't really do them justice. Um, mm -hmm. The point that Butler is making and bringing these up is that there's different uh, ways of understanding the construction. Like simply having constructivism is not sufficient. Like you, there are still contingent possibilities within construction. So the idea of like we're gonna have a stable, settled um, debate. Or, or, or like uh, idea once we've gotten over these natural forms of gender is silly. Um, but just for, for the sake of clarity, I mean, for Bouvard, she says that the, um, that the feminine is, um, is the other to the masculine. So she does not say that there are two distinct sexes. Um, rather, she says that uh, the man, the male, in order to have a uh for the sake of power for the sake of um in instituting himself as like the supreme subject the kind of universal subject the reasonable rational normal you might say the most general like human. the neutral really. yeah like the human being um makes femininity a kind of otherness um and what she describes as gender asymmetry so when we look yeah. at what man and woman are there's immediately a power differential mm -hmm. they're they're not up on on the same level there's asymmetrical power and meaning because one is taken as the the neutral position yeah. on how to see the world and the other is the other yeah exactly it's and been so, denoted and, and it's and it's asymmetrical in the sense that the male is the male by not being the woman but the woman remains a mystery a sort of a kind of a nothingness um mm -hmm. within so it's it's not it's not uh the the catholic perspective of complementarity uh -uh. so so our perspective is that in in order to understand what it means to be a woman i still need to point to the other but what she's pointing out is that that only happens on one side. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm, which, not, I'm not convinced by that, but I'm a man, so you know. What do I know? <laughs> well, I, I think I think what she is is critiquing um, are actual cultural constructions of yeah, so male and female. Totally, I, and I meant to I meant to rant on this actually. The the Greek. Yeah, the Greek. So so it's like um, again, like the Catholic presupposition is not like um, there's just reality and constructionism is silly. Um, mm -hmm. the Catholic conception is we do construct reality. And so these kind of very terrifying, odd descriptions of the man, woman relation, male, female relation, sexual differentiation, we're not saying that you can't make reality appear that way. We're not saying that it doesn't appear that way. Um, and, and with the Bouvard's description, it's like, this is honestly just how I see Greek, ancient Greek culture ending up. I mean, I'm not mm -hmm. saying that there's not, you know, thinkers and whom this might not yeah of course there's exceptions yeah. but like okay the if Bouvard's point is that um the the female serves as the kind of negation that allows the man to be who he is without reciprocating in any way but just like mm -hmm. i receive my identity by a certain negation of that which i'm not mm -hmm. that's the greeks man i mean 
from their from the very like uh, ontological argument about um, women representing passivity as opposed to um, male activity and actually being formed by a certain failure of I mean, for Aristotle, the failure of um, nature to attain its end in the production of the male, but mm-hmm. through some intervening material deficiency ends up in the production of a woman. In the actual social status of women, because of their association with passivity, they're, as, as, as sexual objects, they are lumped together with slaves and children as the possible objects of activity, which is men or citizens mm-hmm. uh, within like the Athenian um, city. Um, and within mythology as well. I mean, if you look at like the production of woman, it's like the the beings that were actually created um, are all men. Mm-hmm. And when woman arrives, it's as this um, sort of machine, almost like it's a construction of the gods mm-hmm. um, in order to affect man in some way, namely as a, a punishment. Pandora is what I'm talking about. Okay, so very brief overview, but what I think you could pull out and what philosophers have pulled out is that... Um, sexism, the appearance of women as being other, as being not the necessary complement to like the sexual drive, um, but belonging to a sort of more generalized category that ultimately functions for the um, superiority and domination of um, the male over the female. And not just that, but like the citizen over the non-citizen. That just seems to be true. Okay. So that being said, what, again, the Catholic argues is not that we're talking about any kind of like access to the real here. We're talking about the way we can make the world appear by Mm -hmm. sin, Mm -hmm. um, that sin constructs its order. Um, Yeah. And I think, uh, it it might be a little bit jarring to hear something like, well, well, we can construct the world. And, uh, what we're not saying is that we can construct our material reality. That's given. We accept given reality. Um, but what that means to us, um, how we incorporate that into our world, into our society, um, mm-hmm. that doesn't always have to be the same. And one easy way to look at that is see how gender roles operate in different cultures. Yeah. Um, so the Greek conception of what man and woman are is different than the Christian conception. We're both starting mm-hmm. from the same biological observation and where there's there's things that follow from that uh and this is what it means but we don't have to come to the same conclusions about that Mm -hmm. and and that's where uh the christian mystery steps in um and this is where where genesis is able to reveal that we were intended from the beginning male and female Mm -hmm. meaning that there is not this uh asymmetrical yeah. Uh, relation, but yeah. a relation of complementarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Jewish people are a people taught by law that God made them male and female, and not that God made male and then through some accident, happenstance, or fall, uh, the female was produced as a secondary reality. So I think, mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, that's, well, I think we'll get more into the significance of that later. So uh, what she does in that section is compare... Beauvoir to another construction um, from Arigure. Uh She so this is um, her summarizing in the next section. 
Although Arigore clearly broadens the scope of feminist critique by exposing the epistemological, ontological, logical structures of a masculinist signifying economy, the power of her analysis is undercut precisely by its global, globalizing reach. Um, so, so she's starting off with, okay, here's, she has, uh, there's two different um, understandings of how the feminine is, is constructed. And she's able to expand that beyond Beauvoir, um, but we don't need to go into uh, a ton of details on that. Yeah. Um, but then what she moves, so I, at this point, we're just kind of moving into the next section. Sure. Theorizing so, the binary, the unitary, and beyond. Buzz um, Lightyear. <laughs> so now, um, so, so she's saying uh, Beauvoir and... Irigare, uh clearly differ over the fundamental structures by which gender asymmetry is reproduced. Um, so that's been troubled. Not everyone comes to the same conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, and then she says, is it possible to identify a monolithic as well as a monologic masculinist economy that traverses the array of cultural and historical contexts which sexual difference takes place? This is her critique of... Um, Irigare, uh, because, Irigare, sorry. That's why uh, I said it. I don't know. Uh, she's critiquing her um, because she is uh, starting to to move into this uh, totalizing and globalizing reach. Essentially, she's moving into universalism in a way. Um, mm. And whenever you start getting too, too big or too universal, um, Butler is going to push back on that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think the, the key to understanding this section comes from the second paragraph. Feminist critique ought to explore the totalizing claims of a masculinist signifying economy, but also remain self-critical with respect to the totalizing gestures of feminism. The effort to identify the enemy as singular in form is a reverse discourse that uncritically mimics the strategy of the oppressor instead of offering a different set of terms. Mm -hmm. So the strategy of the oppressor um, has been in part this, this totalizing gesture. Yeah. And so if you are responding with a totalizing gesture, you're just reversing the discourse. You're mimicking the strategy of the oppressor. Mm -hmm. You're not asking yourself, is this actually going to accomplish what I want to intend? You might just be... Uh, reinforcing that oppression by doing so, um, maybe there's different strategies. Yeah, and I think here you see, I, I mean, I called called all this satanic earlier, and now I think I'll call it a little bit Christian, to be fair, because I think you see in Butler this, um, this desire for justice, this desire to um, not have an enmity-based um, politics, but to, I mean, I don't think she sees a way out of it, but that that kind of aversion to identifying some, like, one enemy, um, I think, rings throughout her work. And ultimately, she's doing the same thing with identity. She's trying to find a way in which you can have um, identity without negating people or leaving people out. Um, these seem to motivate her. So even mm -hmm. though she doesn't end up with solutions, so she says for identity, well, just keep the categories open. And she says for... Um, for the enemy, just don't ever use his sort of totalizing tactic against. Yeah, don't him. say that there's there's one enemy one. and that's him. Yeah, yeah. So you see a certain, um, I think, 
moral conscience here in in Butler, um, which is cool. And uh, then she goes on to uh, argue in this that, um, what do we do then? Okay, because we can all have different um, constructions and different ideas about what makes women, what makes sex appear this way versus that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she starts talking about formulating what she calls coalitional politics. And mm. I mean, we're probably more familiar with this now than when this book was written, this sort of idea of um, identity politics um, on the basis of like not answering questions. Uh, she says, some efforts have been made to formulate coalitional politics, which do not assume in advance what the content of women will be. And I mean, I think that's just a description of a lot of feminism now is like, they're just not answering the question or allowing it to be considered as a question. They're just mm-hmm. going on with their uh, more immediate goals. Which I think um, you you can you you can critique that obviously. Well, Bella okay. does. I mean, well, well, you you can critique it from uh, uh, a standpoint even outside of of Butler. Mm-hmm. You can say how how can you do what you're doing? When you're not even unified, you yourselves have not even agreed on what it means yeah. to be a woman or what it means to be a gender or yeah. what it means to be this or that. Um, but her response is that, uh, this is from page 14, the insistence in advance on coalitional unity as a goal assumes that solidarity, at uh, whatever its price, is the prerequisite for political action. So her response is, y- you don't have to have coherence within this group. Yeah. In order to politically act, and that's pretty much what's happening. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't know how what else you do within postmodernism. I mean, you're trying to like synchronize a whole bunch of competing, violent, like violently competing worldviews. That mm-hmm. you know. So when she says, I mean, she recognizes. She says the coalitional theorist, right? So the one who says we should be a coalition can inadvertently reinsert herself as sovereign of the process uh, by trying to assert an ideal form for coalitional structures in advance one that will effectively guarantee unity as the outcome. So, I mean, this is this is great because it's her critiquing what she just proposed by saying, look, you can, the very notion of coalition and what that should be and do is already arbitrary and sort of comes from one person. So, so she's kind of painting her corner, I think, smaller and smaller um, in terms of what can be done. And, and she mm-hmm. has been criticized a lot by other feminists for this. I mean, like mm. they read her and they say, okay, great, we can do nothing, nothing real, nothing true, nothing authentic. I mean, um, we can't represent anyone. We can't achieve any goal without, you know, being violent um, and leaving people out. Um, but there's this sentence that I think is, good to understand the problem that she's confronting she says the model of dialogue so she's saying you know perhaps a coalition needs to acknowledge its contradictions and take action with those contradictions intact um says the model of dialogue risks relapsing into a liberal model that assumes that speaking agents occupy equal positions of power and speak with the same presuppositions about what constitutes agreement and unity and indeed that those are the goals to be sought. It would be wrong to assume in advance that there's a category of women that simply needs to be filled in with various components in order to become complete. The assumption of its essential incompleteness I mean, it's crazy in some ways that she's using this language, but the assumption of its essential incompleteness permits that category to serve as a permanently available site of contested meanings. 
Uh, and then she says the definitional, definitional incompleteness of the category might then serve as a normative ideal relieved of coercive force. Okay. Now there's a, in there's some a ways, a, there's a lot to unpack and in some ways she's not really saying anything different. So I'll just give my basic take on this, that, um, that search for an, uh, normative ideal relieved of coercive force. Again, it shows the sort of conscience of Butler that she is trying to have, uh, uh, to attain a utopia that isn't forcing people into it. She's mm -hmm. trying to have everyone's freedom intact, which I think we can all agree is a good goal. Mm -hmm. um, but then she's making this move where she wants to say the category of woman, what you mean by it, is definitionally incomplete. Now, obviously, this does not get around coercion because mm -hmm. what it means to say the category of woman is definitionally incomplete mm -hmm. is to, by definition, exclude all of those who think that it can be, be or complete. should be complete, mm -hmm. right? So it's still... No matter what you're saying, you're always excluding someone. And so even in her effort to uh, be totally uh, inclusive, there's still uh, the coercive power of language at play, excluding totally. other definitions from that definition right of and just i mean think about this historically like take all the women alive right now how many of them think that um the meaning of woman should be a permanently available site of contested meetings only rich people who went to college think that i mean I, i'm not trying to be flippant i'm just saying that it, it's even even in attempting to take a sort of broad sort of open tent or open tent big tent feminism big tent. uh you end up in destroying it that just seems like really a failure, um, but interestingly, a failure motivated by this, um, I think, very like moral intuition of mm -hmm. respect for people's freedom. Now, there's one last thing I wanted to uh, take a look at before moving on to the next section, because that, that was really the last note that I have that okay. uh, identity always excludes. Um, but one of the things that you read was um, uh, this risk of relapsing into a liberal model that assumes that speaking agents occupy equal positions of power and speak with the same presuppositions about what constitutes, and then you could really fill in the blank at that point. But that is a very particular postmodern insight, um, and you see this across critical theories, so not just critical theory as it appears in queer theory, but also in critical race theory and, and elsewhere. So it that might that might be an idea that you here repeated elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do think that it's also um, a unique postmodern insight, uh, and it's a really helpful insight, um, is because the world lays itself out in all these uh, power dynamics, we can't assume that everyone has the same uh, positionality in that power dynamic. Um, so in one sense, we are all uh, equal before the law, which is what she's talking about, the liberal model. So she's criticizing, again, the classical liberal model. Mm -hmm. um, but the way that reality actually lays itself out in human dynamics is that power differentials are, are always at play. Yeah. Um, and they're always changing. They don't have to be stable. Um, but it's, it's kind of negating a part of the human experience, I guess, in a way. And so I, I think um, that... The postmodern insight is actually very helpful for understanding the Catholic notion of hierarchy. Yeah. Because the goal is not to say that, the goal is not to make sure that everyone is on the same exact uh, power level. We need differences in power. Uh, for example, you need parents to have more power than their children in order to 
raise them up. But it doesn't mean that all power differentials, uh, all hierarchy, and the way that power is manifested in them is going to be tyrannical. Totally. So. Yeah, no, in fact, within the Catholic vision, every power difference contains within itself the obligation to make it in the image of the father and the son or the or the mother and the daughter or just the parent-child, however you want to look at it. Of God and the, the creature. God and, God and the creature, yeah. Like like power is for their sake. Power mm-hmm. is for this. Is I mean, to have power is to be obligated to become the servant of all. Mm-hmm. Um, when and that, that's within Christian theology, I mean, this is what Christ reveals about himself. I mean, he's literally God. He is the man with the most power. And he becomes the servant of all. He washes the feet of, of his disciples. And he says to them, he says, um, you have to do this too. He institutes a new form of, um, or maybe an old form, but he institutes a form of power that's always distributed down to the weakest in order to lift them up that they might have power. So that's the dynamic of, of, of the Catholic social hierarchy. And um, I think that Butler intuits it. Mm-hmm. Right, but can't see that there's a possibility for good there. Right. She and sees I think the possibility that's... for evil. Like yeah. she says, okay, all of these, um, you know, you say that, you know, I want to liberate women, and this guy, this 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 woman is agreeing with you from a position of weakness because you're overpowering mm-hmm. her because you're you're white and rich and Western and you have successfully invaded their country and so you are able to buy all the billboards, etc. Uh, but you're agreeing technically on. The, uh, you know, there, there's a unity. You've made a, a deal almost to both be like feminists or whatever. But she, what Butler is saying is like, yeah, but the power differential is massive. Mm-hmm. Um, but so she can see the opportunity for evil, mm-hmm. but she can't see the opportunity for good. Simple yeah, as. And that just seems like the, the postmodern move in general. Totally. Okay. All right. We're um, almost done, guys. You're doing great. I, th- I presume you might not be doing great, actually. <laughs> um, Half the people have stopped listening. They've left. The assumption of it's essentially... Uh, Do any women out there feel like they are a permanently available site of contested meaning? Let us know in the comments. Yeah. Um, Men, I don't think, feel like a permanently available site of contested meaning. I just don't get that sense. I mean, sometimes men are like, oh, what does it mean to be a man? Shouldn't I, like, work out and, you know, hunt and get meat for my family? But they don't really... Well, seem to worry what makes them a man, just whether they're being a, a real man. Anyways, not the point. Part five. Part five: identity, sex, and the metaphysics of substance. Uh, in this section, what she is trying to do is trouble identity, trouble yeah. the notion of person, um, trouble the notion of substance. Um, so, so this is what I, I have from my notes uh, summarizing what she's talking about. So identity is what makes something intelligible. Um, and uh, she she uses the words coherence and conti- continuity. Um, so I, I, an identity is coherent. It's continuous. Um, yeah, and she says identities as self-identical persisting through time is the same, unified, and internally coherent. So... I mean, it's kind of already contained in the meaning of identity, but mm-hmm. to just describe it a little more, it's persistence okay. through time as a stable thing. So uh, intelligible identities are that way. Um, so then when we as a, a culture have intelligible genders, so intelligible constructions, 
we're talking about a coherence and continuity between sex, gender, desire, and sexual practice. One follows from the other, which follows from the other. Mm-hmm. Um, what she ends up pointing out here um, is that, well, I'll, I'll just read what she writes. So, the... Sorry, I'm trying to figure out where to begin. Uh, Aren't we all? So she, basically what what her point is, is that um, there is a cultural matrix that has produced coherent gender identities. And when she's talking about, she's really talking about the binary. Um, And... Yeah, by matrix, I mean, it sounds maybe a little obscure. I guess she just means the, uh, the power that has power structure um made a certain thing seem like a natural part of our world uh so she writes the cultural matrix through which gender identity has become intelligible requires that certain kinds of identities cannot exist that is those in which gender does not follow from sex and those in which the practices of desire do not follow from either sex or gender so uh, the cultural matrix has said that when it, uh, there's men and women, this follows from sex and it's manifested in desire and sexual practice and there's a certain order that's there. Um, and that matrix asserts that other identities where those aren't coherent, they don't line up the same way, uh, that cultural matrix says that those identities cannot exist. So it... Uh, prohibits them those aren't real um so so then she says uh that uh follow in this context is a political relation of entailment instituted by cultural laws that establish and regulate the shape and meaning of sexuality so when she's talking about uh gender following from sex the way that we would normally understand that statement would just be that I, I see uh, the sexes, I understand the biology, what this is for, and so it follows that gender means this. But what she understands by follow is just uh, cultural imposition, cultural pressure, that when you see sex, it means this. When you see gender, it means this. Yeah, so to follow is very is more like following a law in the sense of... Mm-hmm. Um, but not in even a good sense, like obeying, not so much obeying as being subordinated to it. Yeah, it's not It's not following by us reasoning about reality because we can't yeah. know the reality for certain and we can't know what it's for because there is no actual meaning in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so follow would never have that kind of context or meaning for her to begin with. Yeah. So then, so then what she ends up saying is that... Um, so these incoherent identities, uh, they're only ever produced from the norm. Yep. So what it means to be an incoherent identity where um, gender does not follow sex, the only reason why you, you perceive it or understand it that way in the first place is because of the norm that you already assumed. So you worked with these definitions in order to create this incoherent identity. And so what she's saying is that um, 
then that that cultural matrix uh, that produced the incoherent identities says that those incoherent identities, which it produced, cannot exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's she's poking at at that. Yeah, and she's also saying that again once you end up once you lose a sense that anything is like positively created, Mm -hmm. then things are only really created in an analogous sense by like a kind of creative destruction. So, and and I'm maybe reading a little into this because it comes up in her later works, but she's saying that what we would take to be like the gender norm, like the basic natural um, expression that comes from a fact, a fact of sex um, is actually produced by it's suppression of other um, possible uh, followings or, or other um, possible identities. So there is no positive thing. It's just that through the constant suppression of um, anything that we would, at this point f- within this text, consider as like a queer identity, um, that the suppression of that, the prohibition of that, is what constitutes the norm in its unity or in its like sense of stability so what she's saying by i I think what she's getting at is that by uh asserting that these um incoherent identities are real and that they exist what you end up doing is just reaffirming the norm the binary because they they only they only make sense because we're using those terms to begin with yeah and so if the goal is to uh is to reveal the binary as not actually being reality then asserting that these incoherent identities are actually real doesn't actually accomplish that goal. It just reaffirms the binary all over again. I think this is honestly like a great critique. And I think that's true. And I think that does happen. Yeah. I mean, you see it all the time. It's like people feel a sort of basic desire for like an authentic expression or, or, you know, to get an authentic um, sense of their gender and so they'll identify with something that is like, well, I'm a third gender or I'm gender queer or I am, you know, pansexual or two spirit or, you know, there's, there, there's uh, numerous options. Um, but the problem is the intelligibility mm-hmm. of any one of those things is relying on the male female binary from which it purports to be a departure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, this is very, very obvious in, in any I mean, if you actually just think about even the words we're using, it's like, yes. okay, so there's queer genders. But what, is it, what does queer mean? I mean, queer doesn't have any um, content outside of its relation to straight or at least its relation to normativity. I mean, queer quite literally means strains, strange. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously it's not strange unless you have uh, a, norm. a norm. And in similar ways, I mean, you don't have a third gender. I mean, the number... <laughs> And that this the third gender as a generality I find kind of silly because it's like we well, only have three if you have two I mean that's just mm-hmm. how number works. Um, there is no escaping from a reference to the binary for mm-hmm. your intelligibility, and, and this is maybe I, I I've found people who are identifying with um, queer identities to find this to be a frustration not all of them but for some of them to be a great frustration because what they want is to say I have this identity and it is mine. And mm-hmm. it is not in relation to this oppressive, uh, you know, hegemonic cultural construction. I've actually found something new here and I want to live here. Mm-hmm. But instead, I mean, the deeper they go into it, the deeper that they find that now the male-female binary has become a necessary force for them. They need it 
not as as a gift from God or anything like that, but they need it now as the oppressor that they have to refer to in order to have any um, intelligibility themselves. Mm-hmm. So it actually becomes a deeper degree of dependence and one that becomes slightly, you know, hidden from a from yeah. A view. The, if the goal is to is to make the norm not the norm, she doesn't think you can do that by asserting these other identities. She yeah. thinks it just reaffirms the norm. So. Her uh, ideal, I think, um, is is kind of along the lines of Foucault with what she she says um, uh, on page eighteen. Um, Wittig concurs, however, paradoxically with Foucault in claiming that the category of sex would itself disappear and indeed dissipate through the disruption and displacement of heterosexual hegemony. Um, so, so the way that you don't affirm the norm is by having sex as a meaningful category dissipate, which is, I think, why she says on the following page, on page 19, and I think this is a very clarifying sentence, um, this appearance of, uh, essentially of identity is what she's talking about, the appearance that there's these identities. Uh, is achieved through a performative twist of language and or discourse that conceals the fact that being a sex or gender is fundamentally impossible. So I think she very clearly lays out her her position that she she doesn't think it's possible to be a sex or to be a gender. This is fundamentally impossible from her worldview. Yeah, yeah I, I want to add... Um... This is going back, but I think it, it sheds some light on her position. Um, and this is where I think she is distinct from most people's perception of like queer theory. Mm-hmm. She says, This is not to say that any and all gendered possibilities are open, but that the boundaries of analysis suggest the limits of a discursively conditioned experience. These limits are always set within the terms of a hegemonic cultural discourse predicated on binary structures that appear as the language of universal of universal rationality. Constraint is thus built into what the language constitutes as the imaginable domain of gender. So again, um, it is not the case that she has this idea that you can be anything. Quite the opposite, like you are. She thinks that you can only work with what you're given, but what you're given is not reality. What you're given is the construction, yeah, and this the is historical where, present. Totally. And this is where I, 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 there's like a Catholic structure, but like without, but with like an atheistic starting point almost yes, in Butler, yeah. where it's like, okay, if you read this you and got rid of all the like weirdo violent language, you could have a basic understanding of the, the way the Catholic experiences the world, which is that um, we... We that reality... can be creative. Mm-hmm. We do have different expressions of of um, reality. We are free and creatively building the world into a particular construction that's revealing facts in a particular way. Um, but but our these... reality is given. But it's given. I mean, we are we are dealing with a gift from a loving God. Whereas within Butler, it's saying like, okay, yeah, you can trouble things and you can do. You can do this or that with your gender, but in the end, you are limited by the reality as it's given, except for it's not reality. It's just the language that's given. It's the mm-hmm. it's the other power constructs that you have to deal with. So when I think of Butler, I tend to think of her living in Babel. So like Babel is this attempt at a man-made world. 
that's complete. Um, and again, it's like, I, I think Butler is right to the extent that we really do build the world like that. So when, when we exclude God and when reality doesn't appear to us as the given, but appears to us as constructed by man to be a technology, like a technological artifact almost, mm -hmm. then yeah, I think she's dead right. It's just that that's, that is the tyranny of particular human beings. That is not in fact the world that God has made. Of course, she would just say that when I say things like that, I'm just asserting my own man-made sort of, you know, theological imposition or whatever. But Which is, you know, that that's fine. That's no problem. Okay. Uh, so, uh, let's just go to the last section. This is it. We're here. We've arrived. So, this section is called Language, Power, and strategies of displacement. Uh, there's a little bit less to say except for the very, very end, which is helpful. So in this section, it seems that she is focusing on the power principle that we've talked about uh, and focusing on language. Um, so that, I mean, that's a very postmodern move. Again, they really understand the power of language um, and how it's able to affect and move people and order people and structure society and structure the world that we live in, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a really helpful analysis. I think that's true. So um, she ends up critiquing uh, the political goals or the utopias that the feminist theorists are trying to attain. Um, and so they're trying to do that by using... Uh, the power of language. So one mode uh, or one method that feminist theorists use is to try to, the utopia that they're trying to attain is the sexuality beyond sex. Um, but her critique of that is that this merely reinforces the categories where you came from. So we, we mm -hmm. kind of talked about that circular issue before. So she's bringing that up again. Another one is... Uh, trying to use language to develop a specifically feminine uh, language uh, for sexual pleasure. Um, except she critiques this by saying, well, really what you're falling into is the this idea that biology is destiny. Mm -hmm. That Yeah, just removing it from to... the procreative generative to the pleasure, but still um, the facticity of the body in some ways. And I mean, you, you see gender. that strain in, in, in pop culture a lot, um, trying to empower women by giving them a language to put on display, like feminine sexual pleasure, because that's not something that is discussed about in wider culture as much as male pleasure. And so you can see how that's a language power move, but she says that ends up mm -hmm. just turning on it on itself. Yeah. And then she also um, critiques the gay discourse because... Uh, Gay discourse is trying to move away from heterosexual conventions, and yet it seems to repeat themselves when you find in this discourse the ideas of butch or femme sexual styles. Right, right. So again, you're just reaffirming the norm yet again. Well, I mean, she goes a little farther in that because she says, okay, so there's that naive repetition of the form uh, within gay discourse, but then there's also... I'm just reading this quote here. The replication of heterosexual constructs in non-heterosexual frames brings into relief the utterly constructed status of the so-called heterosexual original. Thus, gay is to straight not as copy is to original, but rather as copy is to copy. Uh, 
and she's going to talk about this a lot more when she starts talking about like drag and uh, performativity. Um, but basically what she's saying is that if you, um, she's kind of limiting in an extreme way. She's getting rid of any kind of like gay identity, any kind of gay authenticity and saying that what it has the effect of doing when, when you have the kind of imitation of the, what's presumed to be the natural binary mm-hmm. within, um, gay relation, um, that you are revealing the constructed and contingent nature of the sexual binary. So by saying like, look, obviously this thing you think is so natural, like, I mean, obviously like passivity and activity, like Mm -hmm. say, um, well, we can do that here with two active, supposedly active males. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what does this show? It doesn't show that you've reached any kind of authentic, you know, um, fulfilling identity, but what it shows is that Again, the other guy is wrong, is a liar. Mm-hmm. It's enmity based again. So I mean, so it's a. So again, like she's she is critiquing it in a certain respect, and then only affirming it in so far as it troubles um, any kind mm-hmm. of presumption of like a natural um, following entailment of desire from sex and gender. Okay, so so I think what we want to end on. It's on page 34. So this is the the final end of this chapter. And so leading up to this quote, uh, she's saying, okay, so if there is no identity, if you can't be a gender, if being is impossible, if metaphysics is gone, then what is the point of inversion? What is the point of all this political action if we can't have unity, if we're not aiming towards coherence? What is the point of all of this? Um, she says, uh, this text continues then as an effort to think through the possibility of subverting and displacing those naturalized and reified notions of gender that support masculine hegemony and heterosexist power to make gendered trouble, not through the strategies that figure a utopian beyond, but through the mobilization, subversive confusion, and proliferation of precisely those constitutive categories that seek to keep gender in its place by posturing as the foundational illusions of identity. Mm-hmm. So she says that utopia is impossible, but what you can do is show that uh, whatever is, is posing as foundational is actually illusory. The end. The end. And so we end up with a big, hey, I don't know the good, but screw those guys. And this is sort of the, I don't know. Like when I read Butler, I get the sense of like the ceiling getting lower and lower. Because on the one hand, you're like, okay, let's get liberated. Let's get into this like, you know, any gender, you know, any identification. Let's, you know. But then as you start reading, it's like you're, possibilities get lower and lower and lower until like what you can really do with you know against all this oppression and and with all of your desires and all of the identities and labels you have is just like stick a fork in the eye of i really think the christian tradition i mean i think the male female binary is natural yeah i mean i i kind of have the the opposite experience I, i feel like we're walking more and more into chaos i want liberation of my identity but then realizing that coherence and cohesion among 
Um, my group is not even possible within myself is not even possible. Um, yeah, it's like in the end, it, it's like yeah. Judith Butler is willing to walk far enough to the crisis of faith. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, if, if there is nothing given, there's no creation, we're just not presuming it. Um, there's just man-made constructs and everything else is beyond us. Uh, this is where we arrive. I'm going to read one more. Um, and I think that is in some ways, while terrifying, also like once you arrive at that point, all it takes is a, is one. I mean, we talk about conversion as just like a turn. Yeah. Right. It's the twitch upon the thread. Exactly. And it's like, you know, for people that have a sort of maybe naive or just unthought, uncritical sort of, you know, I just want to do what I want with my sexual feelings. And so this sort of plays out. It's like, you really would have to do a lot of shifting around to sort of bring them to a position that of, of conversion in Christ. Uh, with Judith Butler, I feel like you're so far there that all you would have to say is God's real. And if you could convict her, everything would change. Mm-hmm. Um, because the structure is simply one that posits man as God at the end of the day. Um, and so it's ripe as a word for conversion. But, you know, we pray for that, I think. One thing I wanted to read. Maybe you should say some, any like summarizing remarks. I mean, it, it's been a long time. I don't know how long, but I figure that. Yeah, I don't want to go on that much longer. <laughs> I know, but no one, no one at this point, if they're here at this point, is going to okay. be like, what? Yes. Another minute? I'm just going to say this. Good there's point. a line. Uh, <laughs> um, there's a line that I think clarifies maybe as we read this, what the alternative is. Um, this is, she's commenting on. Um, Wittig, and she says, for gender to belong to philosophy is for Wittig to belong to that body of self-evident concepts without which philosophers believe they cannot develop a line of reasoning and which for them go without saying, for they exist prior to any thought, any social order in nature. Now, there are some distinctions I'd make here, but generally, I mean, and and Wittig is saying this with scorn, Mm -hmm. right? She's saying, Gender belongs to philosophy, and that's what's so stupid about it. Um, I tentatively say it with with joy because it seems to me that gender doesn't quite belong to philosophy. I think it belongs to theology, properly speaking. And actually, I think that Wittig's description here is more apt for theology when mm-hmm. considered as uh, um, receiving, as our sort of data, um, articles of faith. Mm-hmm. So like things that... Um, might be necessary for further reasoning, but which we don't deduce or prove. From Are you an... talking about receiving reality as given? Yeah, yeah. That just I can a, know it? Yeah, like a primordial faith of um, what appears as as given being the content of theology. Now, now this is a contentious field mm-hmm. in sort of what is the relationship between philosophy and theology, but it seems like we generally agree that theology involves revelation. Mm-hmm. And the world as it reveals itself in a similar way that the scriptures reveal the world, they come from sources that are indubitable. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't get to question my initial primary. I'm already receiving in mm-hmm. faith the world as real. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just being thrown into things, right? Mm-hmm. In, similar, in, a, in a similar but more like extrinsic law-based way when I'm reading the scriptures, it's like I 
if I assent to the fact that this is God, then the biblical doctrines, the word of God has that same kind of place as that given of the real. It's like, well, this is from God. Um, and so I do think in a sense that the queer theorists here have hit on the right place for gender. Mm -hmm. um, even as many, I think, conservatives or Christians haven't placed it here. So they haven't placed it in theology as one of the givens. They have placed it as a kind of thing that can be reasoned to from prior points. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really interesting to see it in the queer theorists. I think they more clearly have the fear of the Catholic position kind of in, in their head um, and are really reacting against it. Um, or, or trying not to be a part of it in some ways. I think they're mm -hmm. actually reacting more against um, liberal and Protestant sort of traditions that have, have in their mind sort of constrained them into, um, you know, a purely generative yeah, sexual but I, I think, law. Um, but if for them, gender is something that's constructed, which means that it has to do with meaning. Yeah. Um, then, then understanding the the meaning of man or woman, yeah, that that belongs to theology. What does it mean for me to be woman? What does it mean for me to be man? Uh, and that's what the biblical narrative is showing us, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So this is all it's all biblical in some way. Okay, well, thank you very, very much for reading with us chapter one, Subjects of Sex, mm -hmm. Gender, Desire. Now, quick for everyone following the book club here, next we are going to be doing, boy, we're going to try really hard to do the next two chapters yeah, and finish the book. Two two chapters, but we're not going to be able to go through everything in, in chapter two. Yeah, so it's a lot three. of psychoanalysis, and to be frank, I think that Judith Butler is just doing a lot of flexing here, like... I it's can talk because I got all sorts of opinions on Lacan and Freud. It's a lot of in-house dialogue. And, yeah, it's very mm -hmm. in-house. It's a lot of like, um, yeah, like like punching her her like rhetorical academic, questions mm -hmm, and her and... arguments with like Zizek and stuff. It's all there. So we're probably going to touch that lightly. We're going to kind of pick some points from it mm -hmm. that we think. So if you are reading along with us, I would say uh, if you want to kind of. Skim. Skim that. If you're, if you're looking for something, skim, skim that, and then get more into subversive bodily acts where... Yeah, spend more time with chapter three and then the, the very end, mm -hmm. which is a couple pages. Yeah, yeah. And, and with a real attention to like how... Uh, performativity. Performativity works to construct stable appearances um, or, or this, the appearance of substance, even though there is no substance, for Butler. Woo! Okay. All right. Well, that was, that was a long time. I'm... I'm going to go to sleep now. Yeah, me too. All right. All right. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next time.